0: To Martha, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open the scriptures together, let's ask the Lord to guide our study of the word this morning. Father, we are thankful that we have your word. And as we study your word, we are amazed at its consistency, at its accuracy, at the fact that it. Uh, every time we study, every time we go back and read, new things are revealed to us through your word. We come to understand new things. Our thinking is illuminated. And through God the Holy Spirit, we see how that which you have revealed Challenges our perception of you, of your plan, of history, and it challenges us in the way we think and the way we live and the way we carry out our our life on this earth. Uh, Father, as we study this so important passage, give us a greater insight into what the text is saying and a greater understanding and appreciation for your plan and your purpose through the Messiah, both at his first coming and when he returns. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles with me to uh, Psalm 110, Psalm 110, and this morning we will get to the fourth verse dealing with the, uh, the prediction and the promise that God is going to elevate this messianic king also to a universal priesthood and uh, the significance of that one of the things that I've pointed out as we've gone through Psalm 110 and pointed out other times and want to point out because we have several visitors here this morning is that one of the things that we do as we study through scripture is not only to come to understand what the text is saying what Psalm 110 is saying but how that fits within the overall context of Scripture. Psalm 110 is within uh, the 150 uh, psalms that are recorded in Scripture. It is under a certain classification of psalm. It is a messianic psalm and one that is referred to uh, in Matthew chapter 22 by the Lord Jesus Christ. And we studied this, and because on Sunday morning we're going through a study of Matthew, but Jesus uses this prophecy of the Messiah to confound his enemies, the Messiah. I mean, the Pharisees and Sadducees who are attacking him, especially his claims to be Messiah. And so he raises the question with them, "Who is the Messiah? Who is he the son of?" And their reply was that he is the son of David. And then in verse 43, the Lord asked them a second question in typical rabbinic fashion of question and answer. Uh, He uses their own methodology against him. He says, how then does David in the Spirit or by the Spirit, in terms of revelation, call him Lord? How can David, who is a Middle Eastern potentate, refer to this descendant of his as his superior? And then he quotes from Psalm 110.1, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And then David asked the question. I mean, the Lord asked the question. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him from that day on, nor did anyone ask him any more questions. This is a conclusion of what probably took place in one day, possibly two days, where he is under a barrage of assaults by the religious leaders of Israel. And this is the final interchange before Jesus will announce judgment upon the religious leaders in the next chapter. But we're taking time to look at Psalm 110 because when Jesus brings this up, it is understood by the Scribes and the Pharisees there, that he's not just referring to the first verse, he's referring to the whole psalm. In the ancient world, as I've said, that that first verse, off that was the title, they didn't have numbers, Uh, that was the title, and so that entire psalm would come to their mind, and as such it would be clear to them that he was making a claim to be the messianic king, to be the fulfillment of the prophecy in Psalm 110, and that it was also a warning to the Pharisees that they uh, would be defeated... By the Messiah, as his enemies, as predicted in this particular, uh, in this particular Psalm. So we took time, and are taking time, to look at the Psalm, and there is so much here. I've gone through it in a uh, more superficial fashion, but to really dig into this text, it is it is profound in what it tells us. Uh, about god 's plan, because it reflects back on something that was determined in the plan of God in eternity past, and it tells us something about the fact that God, by the through the Holy Spirit, through God the Holy Spirit, reveals Psalm one hundred and ten to David approximately a thousand years before Jesus comes on the scene, knowing in the omniscience of God that that this is going to be used by God the Son when he incarnates himself on the earth. And so there is a perfect plan here that this is revealed to say specific things, and that is then going to be used by Jesus the Messiah when he comes to uh, confound and refute the, the Pharisees. So what we see in terms of the outline is that in the first three verses, we see two characters here, Yahweh, who is God the Father, the covenant God of Israel, the first person of the Trinity, who is talking to God the Son, the Messianic King, who is uh, who is being exalted to his right hand. Where he will await the defeat of his enemies and the establishment of the kingdom. So we see that which happened in eternity past, and then at the then the prediction of this that will occur at the ascension of Christ after the uh, crucifixion and resurrection, and then he goes to the right hand of God the Father uh, in heaven, where he is a- awaiting the coming of the kingdom and he is as we've seen through comparing with other scriptures where he is actually asking the father for the kingdom and until the right time comes that kingdom is held off so we see that the kingdom is yet future so in this in this passage we're going to see a little structure of the outline or panorama uh, of history as part of this exaltation to the right hand of God in the heavens we see a shift in topic in the fourth verse which is the center point of the verse of i mean of the chapter where yahweh god the father makes a vow to make the messianic king a priest after the order of melchizedek and that's the fourth verse and then the consequence of that in the last two verse uh, last three verses yahweh will give the messianic king a mighty and glorious victory over his enemies, followed by a time of refreshment and exaltation to a position of honor and dominion. So that's the structure. We've gone through the first two verses. I hope that today we will make it through at least two verses. Okay, the order of events that we see from this psalm that will uh, take place from the time of the ascension of Jesus to heaven— which is 40 days after the crucifixion, to the establishment of his kingdom, the future 1,000-year messianic rule, um, we, we see summed up in eight points. First of all, there's the ascension of Messiah to heaven. Second, he is seated at the right hand of God on what he refers to in Revelation 3.21 as my Father's throne. Jesus is not on his throne. He's not on David's throne. He is on his Father's throne point number three, asking for the kingdom, according to Psalm 2.8. And then, according to Psalm 7.14, a time will come at the end of this present church age, a time will come when he is granted the kingdom by, a, in Daniel 7.14, by God the Father who is described there as the Ancient of Days. Then, point number five, as the Messiah, he returns a second time to the earth where he defeats the kings of the earth. This is also described in Psalm 2-9 and in Revelation 19:19 through 21 to establish his own kingdom. When he returns, his power base is extended by God the Father. We saw this last time in Psalm 110-2a, in the first part of that verse, that Yahweh extends the dominion of the messianic king from Zion. The Lord shall send the rod or the scepter, and it should be translated, the Lord shall extend the scepter of your strength or your power out of Zion. Other passages that correlate with that are Psalm 2.9, Revelation 2.27, Revelation 12.5, Revelation 19.15, and Daniel 7.27. Then the seventh thing that we've learned is that the Messianic ruler will establish his righteous rule in the midst of his enemies. He will defeat his enemies. This is in Psalm 1102b, where God the Father says to him, "Rule in the midst of your enemies." Psalm 45, six and seven says that he will rule by his righteous scepter, and that verse is quoted in Hebrews chapter one, verse eight. Then the eighth thing that we learned before we concluded last time is that the Messianic ruler will then judge the surviving Gentiles at the end of what that seven-year period, which we usually refer to as the tribulation. He judges the surviving Gentiles as well as the surviving Jews, but the point here is uh, over the surviving Gentiles. That's also described in Joel 3, 1 through 3, and Matthew 25, 31 through 46. And his kingdom is established in fulfillment of Daniel 7.27. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. That includes both Old Testament believers who were resurrected and returned with the Lord, as well as church age believers who were raptured and resurrected at the end of the church age and spent the tribulation period in heaven and then return with him as well as those tribulation believers who were martyred during the tribulation and will return in resurrection body with the Messiah. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominion shall serve and obey him as we're told in Philippians chapter 2, and every knee shall bow in heaven and on the earth. Now we come to Psalm 110, verse 3. Psalm 110, verse 3, and what we see here is that when the king comes, and as Yahweh extends his power, not only uh, that, that he will come with his servants, he will come with the saints, as um, we saw in Uh, Daniel 27 hinted at that that there will be the saints of the Most High, but that he will come with them. The verse says that your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power, in the beauties of holiness. From the womb of the morning you have the dew of your earth. Now, this is an interesting verse to try to understand, Because and your translations may differ a little bit here and there because it's uh, somewhat difficult, and I'll explain that when we get there. But the first thing to look at is this line, Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. Day of your power refers to when Jesus returns to establish his kingdom. Your people refer to those saints who will come with him. Now, this is described in Revelation uh, 19, uh, 11 uh, to 13. Now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. That's that extending his scepter. That's the rule of iron from Psalm 2 9. Uh, he um, judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head, were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with the robe dipped in blood. That's become he, because he has come from the concluding the campaign of Armageddon and defeating his enemies. And his name is called the word of God. And verse 14 goes on to say, and the armies in heaven clothed in white linen, uh, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. That's us. We will be the church age believers in those armies that have been uh, raptured and resurrected and taken to heaven. These are the volunteers that are those who are serving of free will that come with him. In Psalm 110:3, verse 15 says. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. That's a strong word having to do with, with defeating the nations or the Gentiles, which is probably a better translation there. Ethnos meaning individuals, the Gentiles and the enemies of the, of the, of Israel that has risen during the end of the tribulation. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. Psalm 2 9. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of God. And that language speaks of the judgment of God upon the earth dwellers, the unbelievers, those who have rejected God and rejected Jesus as Messiah. Now, when we go back and we look at Psalm 110.3 and start looking at the language here, the first line reads, Your people... Shall be volunteers, and the word there for volunteers is a Hebrew word, nedeva which is a word that describes a free will offering. A free will offering was an offering that people brought out of their own desire, their own will, their own volition to give a gift to God in the old testament uh, and It is a term that also is used to refer to doing something voluntarily. Are volunteering to do something. And so in this context, it has to do with his people who are serving God voluntarily. Now, that relates back to the fact that every person comes to salvation of their own free will. Every person has a decision to make at some point in their life. First of all, are they going to believe God? And if they're going to believe that there is a God, then the next step is to find out how to have a relationship with that God, how to uh, be with that God, how to serve that God. And Scripture says that the problem that keeps all human beings away from God is the problem of sin, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, sin's a word that we often need to describe and define for people today, because In the popular culture, they think of sin as only some horrible, egregious kind of action or activity, murder, uh, some sort of betrayal. Uh, Often it's defined in terms of politically incorrect actions or sins or things of that nature today. But sin in the Bible is talking about anything that violates the character of God. Uh, it is an act of thought. It can be an act of speech. It can be physical actions such as, as murder or, or theft. But any action, no matter how small or insignificant it would be, like eating a piece of fruit, which Eve and Adam did in the garden, uh, in the Garden of Eden, eating a piece of fruit can violate the character of God because it disobeys him. They were told not to eat of that fruit. So sin in the Bible is defined through many, many different ways. It can involve slander, gossip, maligning. It can be mental attitude sins such as jealousy, envy, arrogance, pride. Uh, it can be overt actions. Anything that we think, say, or do that violates the character of God separates us from God and His righteousness. He cannot have a relationship with us, and so because of that, His justice must condemn us. But since we are all sinners... We're all born sinners. Isaiah uh, says, Isaiah 53 says that, that all we like sheep have gone astray, every one of us, to his own way. We've gone our own path. But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all, which means that our sin was laid on this servant of Yahweh that's described in Isaiah 53 that is the Messiah who takes on the sin of the world so that, that he pays the penalty and we don't. He is judged for our sin. He who knew no sin, uh, Paul says in Second Corinthians 5, 7, uh, 519, he who knew no sin was made sin for us, that the righteousness of God might be found in us. It is not, we're saved not because of our own good works or righteousness, but the righteousness of, of Jesus Christ. And so we come to him on the basis of our own volition. If you reject God, if you reject the gospel, then you are not one of those volunteers. You are in the other classification, one of the enemies of God. That's what the, where the Pharisees and Sadducees were as those who rejected Jesus. So those who come with the Messiah in the day of his power are those who have, on the basis of their own volition, uh, trusted in him, and they are serving him uh in the day of your power. Now, this is another interesting word. The Hebrew word here is the word chayil, which is not simply a word for power, but it has to do with strength. It has to do with force. Sometimes it refers to military strength. Sometimes it refers to economic or political strength. And here it's, it's the coming of Messiah to establish his his political economic military authority over the kings of the earth and to establish his kingdom and dominion so with the parallelism that we find here in the day of your power that is when he returns and he defeats the kings of the earth militarily we see the the parallelism between the volunteers in the first line And the military strength in the second line tells us this is talking about those saints who come with the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns, as I read in Revelation chapter 19. Now we get into the next three lines, which go together in the original text. In the beauties of holiness... From the womb of the morning. Now, we can come to a fairly good understanding of that as English as it's translated. But the next line says, you have the due of your youth. And so I have put the question there, huh? What does that mean? And that's a very important line to uh, understand. But first, we have to understand the flow of thought here. Remember, this is talking about what happens when the Messiah comes to establish his kingdom and then we read the line in the beauties of holiness and the word there translated beauties is the word the hebrew word uh, hadar which means majesty or honor or splendor so it's talking about when he comes when he establishes his his power it's in in the uh, beauty the glory the splendor the majesty of holiness but see there's a little bit of a problem here in terms of the original text and that is a question exactly how is the original text to be read because there's a we refer to a textual problem here and i know that we have at least two people in the congregation who are st- taking first year hebrew now and they're trying to figure out this difference okay uh, as you this is the word hadar the last two letters are a D and then an R, a dalit and a resh. That's what we have over here on the right. You can see that the difference between the two is just this very small tick on the right of the horizontal line at the top. You have to have good eyes to spot that. That is known as a tittle. Remember when Jesus said that no yod, not jot, but yod, it's the Hebrew um letter that looks like an apostrophe. It's the letter for Y. No jot or tittle, no yod or tittle shall pass away until all the law has been fulfilled. Because you see that little tick there makes a difference between an RR and a DR. And Hadar and Harar are two different words. And the and it's it 's unclear as to just exactly which one. in fact there's a, a, about eighty Masoretic manuscripts that have Harar as opposed to hadar and it 's real easy if you 're not looking clearly to accidentally see an r instead of a d now does neither word would make a tremendous amount of difference in our understanding of the text if it is um, Hadar, which is the predominant reading in most manuscripts, then it would be translated in the uh, splendor or in the majesty of holiness or in holy uh, majesty or in holy splendor. If it is Harar, then that is the word for mountain, okay? And that would be translated on holy mountains, Either one can make sense in relation to the prophecy, other prophecy. Is that either it's talking about those who come with the Lord and they are arrayed in holy garments, and I think that's probably true. Psalm, uh, I mean, Revelation 19, they're coming in white garments. Uh, they have been rewarded with these white garments, as we study earlier in Revelation chapter two and three, and that's most likely but they also do battle on the mountains of Israel with the Lord against the armies of the antichrist at the end of the tribulation period so neither reading uh, challenges a messianic interpretation or changes any any theology both of them uh, are true but i am going to take the position that this should be translated in holy majesty or holy splendor referring to the garments And the dress of those who come with the Lord. Then we have the next line. From the womb of the morning, you have the dew of the earth. Now this again is somewhat of a challenge to uh, correctly or properly interpret because of what is in uh, what is in the text. And I'm going to skip to there. We go that slide. You have this line, you have the dew of your youth. What does that mean? I've read a number of commentaries, and they all come up with some really creative solutions for this. But the reality is, is that in the most ancient of translations that we have, the Septuagint, which was a translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek that was done about 200 B.C., it has a very different reading here. It has the reading... From the womb of the dawn, I have begotten you. From the womb of the dawn, I have begotten you, which is very different from you have the dew of your youth. From the dew of the dawn, I have begotten you. Now, if you can read what's down here, I realize that's a little, little dark. You make, make a point that the Masoretic Text, that's the official Hebrew text that underlies our Old Testament translations. It was preserved, protected by the a group of scribes called the Masoretes. That uh, after the defeat of the Jews by the Romans in uh, AD 70, uh, as the Jews regrouped, they have to figure out a way to preserve what they believe, their religion, as well as to, believe, to, to preserve their text. And so it was to this group of scribes, the, known as the Masoretes, who preserved, copied uh, the text. But as Hebrew was originally written, it was only written with consonants, no vowels. And so part, one of the things that the Masoretes did was developed a vowel system called pointing. And you can see under these letters, you have these funny-looking little dots and lines. Those are the vowels. And that uh, what they did was uh, they developed this so that they could preserve the correct pronunciation for future generations. But as time went by after Christianity began and after the destruction of Israel, uh, more and more inroads were made among those in Judaism by Christians who were going to Old Testament messianic prophecies to show that Jesus fulfilled all these prophecies. There are over a hundred prophecies in the Old Testament that were fulfilled by Jesus in his first coming. You know, the chances of ten uh, of just ten of these coming true at one time in one person is, is the same odds as filling the entire state of Texas knee-deep on me, not some of you, but knee-deep on me, about two to three feet high uh, with silver dollars and then taking some red fingernail polish and putting a dot on one of those silver dollars and stirring it into all of those, think of it, 900 miles from uh, Beaumont to El Paso, and uh, even more from Brownsville up to some place like uh, Dumas up in uh, North Texas, and... um, so you have huge territory there. Stir that in the chances of one person blindfolded selecting that one silver dollar is, is it would be easier to do that than for one person to fulfill uh, those those just ten prophecies, much less a hundred prophecies. So the Masoretes had a bit of a problem because they see all these prophecies they say oh, that 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 looks like it could be talking about that Jesus of Nazareth we can't have that so let's do something and so they would change in obvious messianic prophecies they would change the vowels and that would change the meaning of a word okay so that that once you did that the word meant something else And then the verse meant something else, and it no longer was messianic, and no longer pointed to Jesus. So that's what this note down here is all about. If you take the word that's translated your youth here, it is this word, yalduteka. If you take the vowels out, it's just y-l-d-t-k. Now the Septuagint looked at that, no vowel points in 200 B.C., that looked at that and said that that is from the uh, verb yelad, Y-L-D, and it should be translated begotten you, because the verb yelad means to give birth or to beget, and in fact, it is the same word that is used in Psalm 2-7, where God the Father says to the Messiah, the Anointed One, today I have begotten you. That is the exact same phrase. And so if you look at Psalm 110.3, which is due to chapter numbering differences in the Septuagint, it reads this way in the Septuagint. From the womb, before the morning star, I brought you forth. In other words, I have begotten you. So the Septuagint and a number of... Ancient translations of the Hebrew text don't translate it from the dew of your youth. They translate it, I have begotten you, which is extremely messianic and connects that to Psalm Psalm 2.7. The idea of begottenness is not the idea of being born. It is the idea of being set forth as one's son. It is official legal type of designation. It's the same word we find in John 3.16 where we read, for God loved the world in this way that he gave his only begotten son. So this terminology of begottenness goes from the Old Testament to the New Testament, describing this unique individual who was referred to as the Messiah in Psalm chapter 2, and as one who is begotten, who is elevated to a position of power. Psalm 2.7, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And there we have the word Yelitika and the the consonants Y-L-D-T-K are the same consonants you have in the word that is translated of your youth in um, Psalm 110 verse 3. So this makes it clear that Psalm 110.3 is talking about when this Messiah comes who establishes his kingdom as the one who has been declared the begotten one of God. And then the text shifts. The focus of the text shifts as we finish that first section talking about the fact that the, uh, the anointed one uh, the, uh, the Lord who says to my Lord sit at my right hand now is going to come in his kingdom he receives the kingdom from the father and then the father uh, swears an oath in relationship to this person's uh, future role it says the Lord has sworn and will not relent you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek now, for those of you who might be less biblically literate, less biblically literate and maybe a little more worldly-wise, I'm not talking about a measurement of Champagne. If you're not familiar with it, there are a lot of different size bottles of champagne that you can get. The smallest one way down here on the left is your normal bottle of champagne, which is 750 milliliters. But somewhere in the midst of time, it was decided to name these different sizes according to uh, names of biblical leaders and uh, ancient rulers. For example, a Jeroboam. Remember, Jeroboam is the uh, ruler in the uh, northern kingdom of Israel after the division. A Jeroboam is equivalent to four bottles, uh, three liters. A Rehoboam, he was the king of the south, the king of Judah. That's six bottles. He's larger than Jeroboam, four and a half liters. A Methuselah, the oldest man in the Bible is a designation for a six-liter uh, bottle, which is equivalent to eight normal bottles. You also have uh, Salmonezer, Balthazar's, Nebuchadnezzar, Solomon's, but the largest at the far right end is a Melchizedek, huge bottle. That is um, equivalent to 40 regular bottles of champagne or 30 liters. I just thought you all would need to be educated a little bit. <laughs> That this is not talking about an enormous container of champagne. It is talking about a specific order of priesthood. Now, this begins emphasizing the fact that this is so important that Yahweh has sworn this is God the Father. He swears something concerning this second person, the anointed one, the Messianic King, he swears, and there's nothing higher by which he can swear, so he swears by his own character, he swears by who he is, and he said, and then it says, "I will not relent." Now, this is an interesting word; it is the word "naham" in the Hebrew. Sometimes it's translated uh, "God repented Himself." For example, in Genesis chapter six. Uh, when the text tells us that the thoughts of man's heart was evil continually, God was going to judge the earth with a flood because he repented himself. And so it has connotations there of sorrow and regret. But this is a word that has a broad range of meaning, and in certain uh, forms in the Hebrew and it, 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 context, it emphasizes a change of mind in some contexts it, cha- it emphasizes uh, sorrow first peter 15, i mean first samuel 15:29 says and also the strength of israel that's another title for god will not lie nor relent or repent or change his mind it's not talking about sorrow there it's talking about god is not a deceiver god is not one who changes his mind for he is not a man that he should nacham that he should relent or repent now the idea here is a change of mind it's an anthropomorphism that when it appears to us that well god was going in this direction now he's gone to plan b that god changed his mind but God, God knows all things from eternity past. He's omniscient. God doesn't change his mind the way we do. But it just appears to us that he has changed his mind when he always knew that's what he was going to do because he knew uh, what certain decisions would be in the human race. Now, he says he will not change his mind. This is the oath that he swears. You, speaking to the second person of the Trinity, you are a priest forever. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, this is really developed all through Hebrews chapter 7, which is why I read that this morning in our our scripture reading. And Melchizedek was a priest in the Old Testament. We first run into him in Genesis chapter 14, the only place he's mentioned in all of the Old Testament. He is in Genesis chapter fourteen. It tells the story of how four kings from the Mesopotamian River Valley invade and conquer what at that time was known as the um, as, as the Jordan Valley or the Valley of the Salt Sea, what today we would call it the Valley of the Dead Sea. And uh, it became known as that because of the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And so they came down, and this four-king alliance came down and defeated the five cities of, of the valley and um, made them vassal slaves. And after uh, 12 years, in the 13th year, the Scripture says that they they formed an alliance, and they revolted against these Mesopotamian kings. And then there's another huge battle, and they are defeated, and that their cities are sacked. The people are taken as slaves, and off they go back to the north, headed back to the Euphrates up north. Uh, They would take a circular route going up and around uh, to get back to the Mesopotamian river valley. Well, Avram, Abraham, in view of his mandate from God to be a blessing to those around him, gathers together his his 318 servants, all trained for war, and they start chasing the armies of these five kings because among those captives are his nephew Lot and his family. And so he meets up with them uh, in the northern part of what we refer to as uh, uh, as Israel today near uh, what became known as the city of Dan in the far north. And there he defeated them, uh, soundly recovered all of the captives and recovered all of the loot and the plunder that was taken. On his way back, he stops in this town called Salem, small village, and it is ruled over by a king who is a priest. It is the Gentile uh, city that is populated by Jebusites. And he pays homage to the priest king of Salem, whose name is Melchizedek. And they have a meal together, which speaks of fellowship, because the king of Salem is a Gentile who is worshiping the same God as Abraham. And we're told that Melchizedek, the king of Salem, uh, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High, El Elyon. And he blessed him, that is, Melchizedek blessed Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram, of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, that is, Ram gave him, gave to Melchizedek a tithe, 10% of all of the plunder that he had, uh, that he had recovered. But what we see here is that this is a unique priesthood in the Old Testament. It is not a priesthood, as the Jews developed, that was from the tribe of Levi, or a high priestly line, descendants from Aaron, but it is a Gentile priest-king that predates uh, Israel and the Levitical, uh, Levitical tribe. So we have to make some observations here. First of all, as a descendant of the tribe of Judah, Jesus was not qualified to be a priest. In in a um, second point is that in Israel the priesthood was distinct from the kingship. There had a separation, as it were, of church and state. But the state was always answerable to the priesthood because the priesthood represented God. The prophets represented God, and they could bring uh, judgment against the king if the king was violating the Mosaic law. But there was always this distinction. Levi was the priestly tribe and Judah was the tribe of the king. Third thing we should note is that the only way that a descendant of David, who was of the tribe of Judah, could become the official high priest was for the order of Aaron, the high priest of Aaron, to come to an end. And that happened at the cross. All of the ceremonial ritual law ends when Jesus dies for the sin because the, 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 all of those ceremonial ritual laws pointed to the need for redemption, a redeemer, something, a sacrifice greater than a lamb or a goat or a bull. So fourth, we learn that God will in the future unite these two offices of priesthood. He performs the action, therefore no one can overturn it. He is the one who chose the priest in Israel and he will chose the priest-king who will rule over Israel. Now, there are some who come along and say that, well, uh, this idea that the kings uh, didn't function as priests is not actually true. They go to an episode in 2 Samuel 6, familiar to some of you, where David is finally having the ark brought into Jerusalem. And he's, uh, he dresses himself in an ephod, which, a linen ephod, which was a priestly garment. And he is dancing and singing praises to God before the, the the ark as it is being taken into Jerusalem. And so there are some who say that, well, see, he's acting like a priest uh, there. In some sense, he is. But however, as I've taught some of that uh, Earlier, what I have discovered in researching this this time is that the, while the linen ephod was a uh, priest was priestly attire, it was not the clothing that was required by the priests to wear when they're offering sacrifices. So David is not assuming to himself a a high priestly role by wearing uh, the ephod. Uh, also, David did not offer the sacrifices himself at that time, but the Levitical priests did and Just as if you were an Old Testament uh, believer, you came to the temple to worship, you would bring a lamb, you would have some participation in the sacrifice you would put your hand on the lamb and confess your sins, you would be responsible for bringing the lamb, the killing of the lamb, the ultimate sacrifice that 's done by the priest, but that doesn 't mean you as a worshiper had nothing to do with it. So uh, David is functioning within his rights as a king, but he doesn't overstep uh, his bounds. So what we see here is that this future king will also represent the people before God and that he will be a priest forever. We read that in Hebrews chapter 7. So that when the messianic priest king inaugurates his rule, his subjects will become a kingdom of priests. This is what God said he was calling the Jews to be in Exodus nineteen five through 6. So we read this in Hebrews chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, Who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of his life, but made like the Son of God. He's used as an analogy to understand something about Jesus' future priesthood. He remains a priest continually. So, what we see from looking at these two verses is that the um, the Messiah will return he will return with an army of saints who are arrayed in majesty and splendor uh, he is He fulfills the role and receives that which is his as the begotten one of God, the Messiah, and then he will take a role as the priest king over the nation of Israel uh, after the order of Melchizedek. And the impact of that for us is this is what we look forward to. This helps us to understand the glory, the majesty, the splendor of the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is uh, and who he will be when he returns at the second coming. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father thank you for this opportunity to understand even more about our Lord Jesus Christ to recognize that, that first he had to come to go to the cross before he could assume the crown he had to die for our sins as our savior before he could would be able to establish his kingdom first the problem of sin had to be dealt with before he could establish his kingdom and establish uh, and correct the consequences of sin In his kingdom. Father, we pray that this morning, if anyone is listening to this message, that if they have never trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior, this is the only hope that we have in this world. Jesus died for our sins, He paid the penalty, and it's not something we have to earn or merit on our own, but by simply trusting in Him. The scripture says again and again believe, believe, believe. That's the issue. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So if you've never trusted in Jesus as Savior, this is the challenge to you to waste no time but to trust in him. The instant the thoughts form in your minds that you believe Jesus is the promised Messiah who died for you, the instant you believe that, you become... A child of God, you are, you receive the righteousness of Christ, you are justified, and you are regenerated and saved eternally. And for those of us who are, this psalm, uh, encourages us because we know that there will come a time when the current, uh, politics and the horrors of political systems of today will be vanquished under the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will establish his perfect reign, his righteous reign, and rule over the earth. And that is something that we anticipate. But today our role as representatives of the throne of God is to proclaim the gospel, communicate the gospel, and encourage other believers with the word of God. And we pray that we'll be challenged by these things. In Christ's name, amen.